the advantage that you get as a company if you start to see your data as an asset. Uh, and you would man you need to manage your data using the same conceptual tools that you manage cash flow or any other asset that you have. Welcome back to the Zero Hour brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And today's guest is Amy Worley. She is the Managing Director and Associate General Counsel at the Berkeley Research Group, uh, where she helps advise uh, clients to develop, track, and report on meaningful KPIs and to monitor the effectiveness of information governance and data privacy programs. And she is a powerhouse. Yeah, she's incredible. The incredible journey she's taken from civil rights lawyer to data privacy expert um, gave a lot of really great insight into how to think about privacy, even if it's not a revenue generating arm, how to actually value those KPIs and the impact it has on your organization because data is an asset. Yes, and um, I think to that point, it was useful getting her thinking around the value of that asset, including when that asset can be toxic. So without further ado, let's get into it with Amy Worley. All right. So before you joined uh, the Berkeley Research Group, you had built a global privacy program for a pharmaceutical company effectively from scratch, but covered over 28 countries. So we deal with a lot of companies that are having similar issues, whether it is uh, data compliance or, or data privacy. So where do you even start when you're talking about programs of that scale? So um, I think it really depends on the company, but what, what we did was first identified where we thought the highest risk was. So privacy is, unless you are um, doing what I'm doing now where you sell privacy services, it is not a revenue generating piece of the business. And I think for any compliance professional, you need to be cognizant of that. And so what we did is we started with identifying the um, geographic areas where we thought the risk was highest. And we then built out a very, very detailed project management plan based on the risk of the company. And we got the compliance committee to sign off that they agreed with our risk assessment. And we went very methodically, step-by-step, putting the program in place based on the risk of the business. Um, And then the other thing that you have to do, and this was surprising to me because um, I, before I went in-house, I had just, um, my experience was entirely as a lawyer in a firm. Um, but you got to sell what you do because if the business doesn't understand the value to them, then you won't get the buy-in. And asking people to take additional steps for compliance and risk purposes adds to their workload and it adds friction. And um, so I spent a lot of time, I pulled out my old trial lawyer skills. And I flew all over the world. I am a million miler and I got people to understand why it matters. 
And then once I had them on board and because we took this risk-based approach and we didn't try to boil the ocean, um, they did it. And, and I, I have to say, I'm really proud of the program that is still going strong at my former company. Yeah, I think you raise a good point about boiling the ocean. I think where we see most of the obstacles are teams kind of consider it an all or nothing approach. Yep. And they kind of hamstring themselves in the yep. in the decision process. Um, so that that's interesting that you should bring that up. And also, we play around with this concept of like the minimum viable governance, which I think sounds sort of what you were doing, which is yep. establishing right. the risk framework and then imagining how it scales rather than taking it piece by piece, element by element. And we spent a lot of time with the audit committee getting an understanding at a real sort of algebra level. Mm-hmm. Um, what risk are they willing to take? And then we looked at um, the authority decisions for the various geographies and said, okay, I can put together, you know, it's still subjective, but I can kind of put together a math problem and tell you what the risk looks like in these places. And then I'm very comfortable with giving a business that feedback and the business saying, okay, I'm willing to take 40% of that and me looking and saying, okay, so you need like a C minus program. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We can build a C minus program. Like we, we can do that. And as long as I feel like everybody's informed and we've considered all the variables and that is the way the business wants to go, I think that's fine. Oh, that's interesting. And I, well, I want to, I don't want to challenge you personally, but I want to challenge the thinking here. So I, I get what you'd said about, you know, this is not a revenue generating part of the business, but I think especially in light of COVID is that a lot of the people who have approached us about automating compliance in some capacity or other, yes, it's not revenue generating, but one, there can be a tremendous cost savings, which obviously affects P&L. But in some regards, if they do take a proactive approach and they it allows them to turn on new technologies that they hadn't before, you do in a way get compliance and privacy to be part of the engine that eventually drives revenue. In and of itself, it doesn't, but it is a very integral part to an innovation that will lead to greater revenue. Yes, I agree with that. And when I was doing my roadshow and selling this, um, I talked, and I'm a absolute convert about this, um, about the the advantage that you get as a company if you start to see your data as an asset, uh, and you would man- you need to manage your data using the same conceptual tools that you manage cash flow or any other asset that you have. Um, You want to hedge against risk and you want to be able to put it to work for you. And um, the way that I talk about privacy compliance is that my goal is to get the business to yes. It may be a yes and, yes and we need to do it with these guardrails in place, or yes and we need to do it in this slightly different way. But um, I want to be a partner in helping the business innovate and push the market. Um, and, and I think, I don't think, so I, you know, as a privacy professional, I very, very much believe in protecting individual information for lots of reasons. 
Um, so I don't want to give the impression that I'm giving the farm away. Um, I just think that you, especially if privacy is included in the design phase, you can build innovative products. You can use your data to your advantage and you can still protect privacy. But as a privacy professional or a compliance professional, you've got to earn your spot at the table. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. That. yeah that's great. Um, I want to shift just a little bit. So the new normal is no longer new. I feel like we've heard people say that a lot. We're all talking from our home offices right now. But what are you seeing in the larger business community as organizations adopt practices and technologies to meet these business continuity challenges? So it's very interesting. I think there's kind of two sides to that. Um, one, we're seeing that businesses can be more agile than they thought they could. Yes. Um, it's There's nothing like necessity, right? Necessity is the mother of invention. Yes. So, uh, for, forcing mechanism. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a constraint. Um, when I'm not doing this, I'm a lawyer, or excuse me, when I'm not doing this, I'm an artist. And um, when I am approaching a piece, I actually like to have constraints. Yes, because absolutely. It shapes the creativity. Um, you know, there's nothing scarier than a blank page or a blank canvas. And so I before this occurred, I had a lot of clients who were just afraid to to go with some technologies that they have now implemented really quickly. Um, and I think ultimately that's gonna be a win. For example, um, we're now on Zoom. We're, you know looking at each other, talking from our home offices. Um, I used to spend so much time on airplanes traveling all over the world because I couldn't get people to understand how you could do this in a way that you could still have value to the meeting and still communicate clearly. And I think now we're going to see more people willing to do this sort of technology. So I think, I think the constraints have been helpful. On the side that's concerning to me, um, I do worry that because of the need to keep revenue going and keep businesses stood up, um, if if companies aren't willing to put a contract around tools, um, if you don't provide your workforce with a tool, they'll find one on their own. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and that can be very risky. So I, I, I encourage clients, pick your tool. Pick what you're going to do. Do your due diligence, get it out there, get people trained on it, let them use it. Because if you don't, they will use something else and something else could be a problem. That's a, that's a good point. Yes, we've often talked about bringing shadow IT into the light, like mm-hmm. reduce the stigma of it and uh, legitimize it. Then you can actually cover it. But if you just sort of pretend it's not there, well, I issued a notice and told everyone they can't use WhatsApp. So I'm just going to pretend that the, <laughs> the reality is not uh, not a, a very safe way of doing business. But so you, you do bring up a good point here, which is the alacrity with which a lot of new tech has been adopted. And I believe I've said it on this podcast before, but we had global 100 banks and pharmaceutical companies, the last companies you would think to say WhatsApp with any true uh, authenticity come to us suddenly, you know, 
in January, it was all like pie in the sky, digital transformation. Yep. Maybe yeah. it's in 2022. In five and years, then, we're going to be yeah. there. It's gonna yes. Be great. Yes. And then in March, it was like, I need a thousand licenses because none of my uh, field force in Brazil can meet with doctors. So how are they supposed to communicate? And I was like, well, that's so funny. Before this podcast, I was on the phone with a field sales force in Brazil that was having this exact conversation. I feel like you were just in my office. Yeah. Oh, okay. yes. Well, <laughs> speaking of data privacy, no. Um, so, I guess let's kind of couple that speed with what we were talking about before about um, being a revenue generating or earning your seat at the table part of the business. Do you think that this forcing mechanism also demands kind of a rethink about this approach? I know we've talked about bringing sort of shadow IT into the light and, and pick the tool because if you don't, it will be unsanctioned. But I think maybe this is a a watershed moment for what was traditionally a boring part of the business is that risk and compliance has a real part to play here in enabling technologies. Because let's be honest, if you are a huge pharmaceutical company and you buy a thousand uh, licenses to protect WhatsApp, you are not tearing that technology out six months from now. Nope. Right. It's like a strategic investment. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, um, so when we build programs for clients, we set up a privacy impact assessment process that's agile. And we have, it's been, this has been uh, obviously an unplanned proof of concept, but I've been really happy with the way that it's worked because we build out the tool, we build out the questions, we built out the um, risk tolerance of the business. So bringing in a tool is just plugging in inputs. And we have some standard controls that we recommend and we revisit it every 12 months or so. So, you know, it's a living thing, um, very similar to in the cyberspace. Um, so we have um, clients right now who are looking at WhatsApp, who are looking at Zoom, um, Teams, all of the different ways of communicating. Um, I had a, I've had a very interesting discussion um, with some clients about using web-based AI to do some um, some healthcare um, filling in the telehealth, and you know it. Yeah. And, and I think um, I think the important thing is if you don't already have an agile compliant risk assessment process in place, you need one. Because it's not going to work. It's not going to be credible anymore to tell the business they're going to wait five years for this because they know they didn't have to when COVID came around. Um, and more importantly, you'll have learned that your competitors did turn on WhatsApp and you were left behind. And now you're stagnant in some markets where they have been able to have conversations. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I have had that the WhatsApp question specifically, we get a lot. Um, and I always, so there's a thing that happens to you in law school. Um, you ask a question and the professor will look at you and say, moo. And it's not a cow moo. It's a philosophical, you've asked the wrong question. And the, can I use WhatsApp is the wrong question. The right question is, how can I use WhatsApp? And I, I hope that this process is getting people to think more in terms of how as opposed to whether. It's a great Zen Koan approach. Break break some compliance minds. Yeah, like <laughs> wrong question, just the wrong question. 
Yeah. I, I love I love the reframe. So speaking of law school, you practiced 16 years before moving into the industry. How how did you get into data privacy issues? I I've told this story so many times. It like most things in life, it was totally unplanned. Um, I just happened to come out of law school in 2000 as the internet was happening. And um, I started out as a civil rights lawyer doing Fourth Amendment search and seizure cases. And yes. I developed... Like physical data privacy. Exactly, right. And habeas <laughs> corpus. And, um, and so that constitutional framework I had and the internet was happening. And I just sort of developed them together. When I was in law school, there was no such thing as a privacy class. You, you learned it as you, as you came out. And... Um, and, and I was not full-time data privacy until about halfway through that time, that 16 years. And, but as it really moved with online commerce, so if you go back and you start looking at, um, when did retail really move online? Um, it was, you know, the mid aughts. Um, and that's when we first started having questions about it. When the internet was slow, Privacy wasn't a problem. Right. Honestly, before we walked around with, you know, our geolocation trackers and um, so it, it developed organically. Um, and it's also very interesting to be raising kids right now because I'm doing a lot of teaching them. We talk about how the Internet has a tail and you drag it behind you and it picks up stuff as you go. Mm. You know, I feel like that is a very useful lesson. Yeah. That's a useful (laughs) lesson for grownups. Yes. Yeah. Nothing you do online goes away. So, um, and, and before the Edward Snowden, um, revelation occurred when I would tell people what I did, they were just sort of, their eyes would glaze over. Um, so that was useful just for me personally to be like, okay, so you know that thing that Edward Snowden was talking about? That that is what I do. Yes. And then then came Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> then came Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. Absolutely. And I it'll be um it'll be very interesting to see this next election cycle. Um how do we deal with the privacy issues when I, yes. And for sure. I think we're contending with it with uh, contact tracing apps as well for COVID. We've worked with some app developers um, and it's um, talk about the, the tension of a real public need to, um, to process personal data, to transfer it, to share it, but also the stigmatization and potential for discrimination and having to develop those two things together. I've been real impressed with the way that um, Apple and Google have approached their app development. Um, they, they have absolutely been doing the best they can to have privacy in the forefront of that conversation. That's good. Yeah. You had mentioned, um, yeah, privacy by design. I think we've also talked as a company about security by design. If you can come into the questions um, rather than trying to just duct tape it on at the last second, like this is a box that needs to be checked because that always ends up being a more expensive approach anyway, because you have to do all this like backfill um, or you get a fine and you have to pay that first. Yeah. Um, so given your experience, it's great that you uh, have talked to some of these app developers. Um, 
what is the one of the more surprising trends that you've noticed when when you are asked to come in and, and work with these privacy and records management programs? They don't know why privacy matters. <laughs> um, okay, that is shocking. <laughs> so, um, I I have a little speech I give about how privacy is just another way of talking about free speech, um, and that helps. I think you know we talk you. You can't have um, democracy without privacy. You can't have government without people without privacy. So I do, I've been shocked <laughs> that I've had to sort of go back to privacy 101. Um, the other thing I'm hearing sometimes is, well, no one cares about privacy in the middle of the pandemic. And um, I will say people care differently about privacy in the middle of the pandemic. And so doing a lot of teaching you know, for example, there's, you know, Bluetooth technology can do a lot of what geolocation tracking can do, but it can do it in a much more private way. And that with privacy, you're always weighing what is the purpose and the benefit and what is the privacy impact. And with COVID, obviously your purpose and benefit are higher. So you're willing to tolerate a little bit more privacy impact. Mm -hmm. But I also will really push back on, are you using this technology because it's cool or because it's better? Yes, that's it. We've talked with some heads of uh, innovation that Bertelson over at Nestle uh-huh. is pretty uh, clear, e- even from a marketing standpoint, that just because you can collect certain data doesn't mean you should because yeah. you know you can turn on the faucet and just let the water run but that may not get you to your goal and then you're just sitting on a whole bunch of user data that's not really your business right um that's that is that is interesting and it's interesting i think because what that question means or i guess this misunderstanding of why privacy matters seems to be some kind of divorce between the people you're talking to as uh, individuals inside of a company or an app development and them as individuals, right? It's kind of the golden rule. It's like out in the world when they're not talking to you as part of their business, do they want people, you know, looking at all their preferences and, and just going they don't. You're they right. Don't. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's right. And and I've had some clients and um this is the one of the challenges obviously with with COVID has been as security issues have happened, um, it can be harder to respond. Your tabletop exercises that you've done before are different when you're Mm -hmm. not in the same room. Um and we've had some clients who experience ransomware. And the exfiltration piece of that, some of the data that got pulled wasn't data that they ever needed. And now they're in a situation of having all of the data breach remediation and notification responsibilities, and they never got any benefit from the data because they didn't have a purpose for it. They were just scraping it. So it's all downside. That's a very interesting point. So we we encourage folks to really think about data. It has a cost. It's it's easy to talk about, well, you know, you can store on the cloud, you can store a terabyte of data for cheap. But um, if you think about it as intersecting lines on a, you know, the usefulness of the data and the risk of the data, 
you want to get rid of it right at the middle where the risk is not higher than the usefulness and bringing in data that you're not using, you're, you're already out of balance on your chart. Well, and going back to data as an asset, there are toxic assets, as everyone has learned from 2008. <laughs> like it can be a net negative to be holding that. That's interesting. That's a good. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, it's interesting. You have to, it sounds like you have to be an expert in many different topics because you've got to stay up on trends like ransomware and how data privacy issues are involved. So I'm curious in all of these things that you're um, experiencing and advising with your clients, are there any topics or trends that you um, see popping up that you maybe want to dive into or learn a little bit more about? I want to get better at security. Um, so I, I am a privacy expert and um, we partner, we have, um, we partner with Reveal Risk, who I know you guys have, have spoken to, and we absolutely partner with security experts a lot. Um, but in terms of thinking about the data and thinking about compliance controls, um, I've used some of my time at home during COVID to do some CISSP classes, not to get the certification, but just to get the knowledge. Um, it's a it's a very compatible way of thinking, and I also like to be able to help the help my clients spot an issue where they need to go get expert advice. You know, I'm not a technologist, and so having being comfortable enough with security technologies to say. You know, I think you might want to look at encryption at rest here, or this would be a very interesting use case for blockchain. Um, not to do it, but to, to tell my clients that they need to get someone who can do it. Yes, that's interesting because I think privacy risk and compliance have sort of always... Uh, well, maybe in the popular imagination connoted towards the legal profession, whereas security has always been kind of the domain of technology. But when you talk about a data breach or um, inappropriate conduct, uh, which we've caught inside of like a Microsoft Teams instance, oh, yeah. I mean, that touches both of those things. And, and those teams sometimes don't talk to one another until such an event happens. Yeah, so we're we actually have a client, um, a global pharmaceutical client that we're just starting a new engagement with. And the first month of the engagement, we're just listening. So we're going around and virtually sitting yeah, in right. rooms and um, and letting people in in IT um, and in the business talk to us about what they think. Um, privacy looks like and also um, what their experience is in terms of data breaches, whether personally or professionally. Uh, and then when we go in and build a program, we ask for um, IT to provide us one of their security team members to be a part of the program build out so that because they are so related and, and um, you know, we do a lot of talking about data classification, which I know you guys do, um, to make sure that we're not reinventing the wheel and that we're aligned with what they're already doing. And if we recommend that they need IT security support, that that person is in the room and can be a part of the, the development. But you're right. They are 
traditionally siloed and you know privacy 101 is security is a component of privacy you know you can't have privacy without security um and yeah. Yes, and it so that raises an interesting question. Um, I had to answer uh, some questions this morning from uh, a reporter, so I'm going to pose it to you before I I, I give you my answer, which is um, how would you advise companies who are trying? How would you advise them to prepare for the next? either pandemic or the next wave of COVID that is strong enough to, you know, merit a lockdown scenario like we saw in March and April? So that is a really interesting question. I, the first thing that I'm doing right now with the clients that we've worked with the whole time is saying we need to pull together a lessons learned document and make sure that everyone agrees that this is what went well and this is what did not go well. And um, from there, that I think gives us information about whether we need process improvements or tool improvements or both. Um, I will say it's so much so that it's a joke with my team that a tool without process is just an expensive non-solution. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> we we were just talking on our side about something that we've just um, uh, acquired to do something. And I was like, if we don't have the process on the back end, we're just going to have a whole bunch of shiny object okay. syndrome. Yeah, you're just going to have expensive nothing. So I, I think we start with what have we learned? And then I think... Um, apply your basic risk modeling. Um, right now, the what we're hearing is that we should expect this new normal to continue um, to the outside of a two-year two horizon. Um, and I'd, as much as I am such an optimist at heart, when I'm when I'm risk remediating, I'm. <laughs> Um, and so, um, plan out your modeling, reallocate your resources. Um, you know, just because something was on your roadmap going into COVID doesn't mean it should stay on your roadmap. You, you may need to be nimble and adjust. And I think we are going to see a lot more investment in communication, um, video conferencing, and and other um, you know messaging apps and one of the things and, and this I'm sure won't be a surprise to you but one of the things that we see that drives lawyers crazy is people using email like instant messenger. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know that in this environment in particular is so dangerous because everything is being you know done. And then um, the litigators will tell you, you've just created a, a record of all of those communications that you didn't intend to be corporate records. Um, and so getting folks to who businesses that haven't done it to really start looking at, you know, a Jabber or another tool that is an instant message tool and get out of email. Um, yeah. So that's probably a long answer to your question, but start with what happened. Yes. And I think, so that's sort of good. I'm glad that we essentially said the same thing. I, I was 
telling this reporter that it was, um, you know, you should take it as a learning opportunity. I mean, IT teams were under great stress. It was like you had three days to stand up a, a virtual workforce and um, you can kind of like pout about that. And now yeah. we're past that. Or you can also look back and say like, okay, well, I think one of the key lessons is, you know, what we've talked about here is companies suddenly realizing like maybe they do need WhatsApp, maybe they do need Microsoft Teams. So you should take that time now to go around to those different stakeholders and say, what is it that you need to not operate on a, you know, just a simple business continuity basis, but what would you need to do it well to do your job well? And let's talk about how, but I think that comes back to that, um, expedition journey is going to require both legal and security kind of going around all the teams. So, so that they do that. And then to your point about, uh, email as a record, you know, we have one client that was, they have 5,000 employees and it was 60,000 Slack messages a day. And then work from home, it's now 150,000 a day. So just the sheer volume and velocity of the communication is, you know, Orders Absolutely. of magnitude larger. Yeah, and I, I have seen some people, and I, I think it could be a good solution. Um, some, some businesses, instead of setting up um, a Zoom call, um, having um, a video window open for a team that's used to working together, mm-hmm. and they're working, and they're also talking, and it's. It's sort of learning how to be virtu- uh, virtually together in a way that's similar to the way that it used to be in the workspace to kind of get out of the typing all of the time. Now, there are bandwidth and security challenges around that, too. But I, I think we're going to have to be creative yes. um, around how to do that. And the other piece is training people remotely in a way that is effective. Um I know that no one on this podcast has ever pulled up a training while doing something else. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Clicked through it periodically, but we're starting to um, put together like 90 second draw shot videos and pushing those out Um, and phishing campaigns where when you click on the phishing email, it pops up a 30 second video to teach you, you know, much more real time, Based on your actions, here's the, you know, here's what you need to know right now. That's interesting. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, I think that's very effective. Ashley and I both come from an organization where, that shall remain nameless, that we were subjected to the usual security training, which I think everyone is, and is always running on this monitor yeah. <laughs> trying to do the other stuff. Yeah, that, that you were yeah totally. There, um, the, in North Carolina, all lawyers have to do a substance abuse training, which is good given the, um, the prevalence of substance abuse in the legal community. But it, when it's online, there's like jokes of people sitting there with a glass of wine, sort of like <laughs> watching substance abuse training. And it's like, I don't think this is having the effect that you wanted to have. <laughs> yeah. I would, I would say the, also the immediate downside of having an always on video cameras, um, you definitely need to make sure you're not wearing pajama pants. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. The, the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> These are my nighttime pajamas. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really interested in that 
programs is I'm sure you can also measure how effective those engagement or interventions are, which is always, you know, you want to be able to quantify the impact of what you're doing. And I'm curious when it comes to information governance and actually measuring how effective these programs are, what kind of KPIs do you look at and, and monitor? So I can nerd out for this on so long because I love this topic. Uh-huh. I love this topic. We, so, love that. <laughs> we actually gamify it. Um, so we look at um, several different KPIs. So for privacy programs, we look at um, how many reports of suspected data breaches are you getting? Um, and we, we sh- you should be getting, like for let's say you're a, a thousand employee organization, I'm going to expect one a day. Somebody has clicked on a phishing, somebody has lost their iPhone, some, you know. Um, so we, we're not looking necessarily at um, are all of those reportable incidents. We want to see that people know what they're supposed to do and that they're using it, um, you know, like they should. Risk assessments. How many are you getting per quarter? How long is it taking you to get them through? Um, and, you know, just tracking that the process itself is being followed. Training. So we track training as a KPI, but we don't track it in the traditional way. We track it in terms of engagement. So when we send out one of these 90 second, um, you know, videos, how many people watched it all the way through? And then we'll have a little survey question at the end, but you can, you know, answer what, how do I notify somebody of a data breach? Boom, you put in the email address and then we can track that. Then when we train executives, um, we actually use uh, smartphones or iPads to build scavenger hunts and all kinds of different ways of learning. Then we'll take the backend information of that and show them what they already know and what they need to know. So sort of the questions will be increasingly difficult until we exhaust their knowledge of it. And then we'll turn around and focus our education on that piece. Um, and then with privacy, we track data subject or consumer requests. So in the post-GDPR CCPA world, how many people are reaching out to the privacy office with questions, how many data deletion requests, um, that kind of kind of stuff. So we, we look at, oh, and then, sorry, the last thing on information governance is we look at your total data that you're storing before we come in. And then we do some um, data disposition exercises and try to get people to businesses to start getting rid of that low value data. So we'll gamify deletion. You oh, know, interesting. How many gigs are you getting rid of? And then take that to finance and put the hard numbers on it. So this is what you saved in storage costs, sometimes, you know, 70, 80 grand. But then we use Panamon studies for e-discovery costs. And the last one I looked at, it was like $3,100 a gig for a lawyer to review in the event of litigation. So then we show the cost avoidance. So here's what you were paying to store it. Here's what you would have paid if a lawyer had to review it. Uh, And that gets executives to pay attention because that's dollars. That's That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and people, we've had clients where employees got like cutthroat about the gamification. Like, <laughs> I deleted nine and a half gigs in the last, you know, twenty minutes. Well, I mean, you are talking about 
executives in corporate America, it's just built into the DNA is to be the, to be the best at whatever. And I'm like, work with that, right? Like if, if you've got very competitive executives, then let's give them a competition. That's great. Um, I did want to, something occurred to me when we were talking about uh, data privacy. Before we started recording, we were talking about uh, the dilemmas that school systems are facing. Um, I wonder if uh, in these virtual school environments that you have either as a parent or you have seen as a professional, any similar uh, privacy concerns. So, for example... Um, we are securing the Microsoft Teams environment for a, a K-12 private school. They have 1,200 students. And I think to them, it was like, great, now kids can talk to one another. They can share assignments. They can collaborate on a book report, whatever. And we were able to show them in the first 10 days, your students produced 125,000 messages. The scale just was like alarming to them, right? I've watched it happen. I've seen them sit there and, you know, yeah. Yeah, well, they were also they're surprised lonely, that... They're excited to see yeah. each other, yeah. They're also surprised that kids are logging on at two in the morning, and I was like, I mean, what do you expect? And then, uh, but more importantly, the balance between the, the the privacy of those communications, but also, you know, we found instantly 2,000 uh, messages that had high risk involved cyberbullying, inappropriate conduct, drug use, plans to bully another individual. And so... We're talking about if it's a virtual schoolyard, you have just as much responsibility to create a safe environment mm-hmm. um, for learning as you do in a physical environment. So I just I want to put that out there. We've been talking mostly about corporations and PL sort of driven initiatives, but I'm, from a public good standpoint, have you entertained any of those questions? Uh, we're struggling as, you know, I have a 10 year old and a soon to be 12 year old and um, they did two very different types of school. Um, one's in private school, one's in public school. And um, one was to use Zoom, was on Zoom for four hours a day, just like classroom, but his classroom's really small. So that, that worked for them. Um, my older son is in a public school with 30 kids and, um, they didn't try to do video interaction much mm-hmm. because when they did exactly what you just described happened, all of the messages started going, um, as a mom, I have worried that, um, you know, we've been pretty conservative on internet access and screen mm-hmm. use with our kids, just shockingly, given what I do. Um, <laughs> and um, it's been much harder to keep tabs on that now because, you know, he's out researching a paper or he's looking at a near pod of Andromeda. And um, I have actually talked to some schools and um, suggested that they do some monitoring. Um, Start looking at those messages, looking for the bullying, looking for the inappropriate conduct. Um, Also on the contracting side, you know, make sure that they, it's really clear who's responsible for what (laughs) on these Mm -hmm. technologies. Um, I think that's the stressor because we we talked about how hard it is for IT and privacy to cooperate. When you're talking about a school system, it's usually like two-person IT department, and they are expected to touch anything that plugs into a wall. Yep. Right. So they're not a compliance team by any stretch of the imagination. No, I, you know, I, I really continue to, to worry about that. Um, 
kids, especially in the early and middle grades, are have such different technology mm-hmm. savvy. And you'll have some families that have been very comfortable. Kids have had computers for a long time, and they they know how to deal with them, and they act appropriately. Um, that is not always the case, and especially in a school environment where um, you may have kids with disabilities that you're trying to accommodate. Um, I, I think it's really, really hard. Um, our local school district, I, I think, really did the best they could in terms of they decided that until they had time, which, you know, we were just talking before the, the call, mm-hmm. I think it will change starting in late August when they go back, that they were not going to let kids do what we're doing right now. Right. Because they just didn't feel like they could protect everybody. Um, but when we go back, they have, and I don't know what the technologies are yet, but I know that they have bought the infrastructure to try to allow more discussion. And, um, I have had some inquiries about, you know, what are the rules around monitoring? And it's absolutely a yes and thing. You can monitor you just have to monitor the right way. And um, I think that will be very interesting to watch how that evolves. Yeah. And also, I mean, not to be too cynical about it, but just from a record standpoint, right? If you have a parent who comes to you and says, my child has complained that, you know, these other students are bullying her and what are you going to do? Subpoena slack? Like if you like, you have no recourse to to uh, mediate a problem. It's it's quite the yeah. I mean, when we we were we did a lot of um, being present in the room mm-hmm. when was happening because we felt like on the parent side it was way more realistic for us to be able to control it on our end than to think that the school could handle it on their end. Yeah, interesting. Um, so, but obviously, you know, as we were also talking, families have to work. And right. I think all of this will, will spawn more innovation, but it'll be sticky until we get there. Yes. I mean, as a, as a parent, uh, you know, kids going back to school is like, yay. But as somebody who's friends with a lot of teachers, it's like, oh, they're on the front lines of like massive infection. Because even if the third grader doesn't exhibit symptoms, like you as the 40 year old teacher might very well catch coronavirus. Yeah. yeah. So right before we got on this call, I was looking at the school board came out um, in Wake County, Big County and said, you know, one week on, two weeks off, ABC. So they're going to rotate through. Yeah. Um, and you know, everybody says it over and over again, it's unprecedented. Who knows what that's going to look like? Um, right. Yeah, we just don't know. Um, but they, I, I will say one thing the school system has done here is for families who do have a very high risk individual, um, they have an entirely online curriculum yeah. that is part, it's done with um, telehealth technology. And that has been operating. So they know how to do the monitoring. And um, and so there, there used to be a tuition associated with that. Now they're making it available, uh, which I think is smart. You know, you've got something that's working. Let's make that available. The kids can't go back. Yeah. Comes back to, to yes and. Mm-hmm. Um, well, very much want to thank you for taking the time. It was a very fruitful discussion. Uh, really. Bye. 
gave us a lot to, to think about. That's very helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. I will talk about this stuff forever. I love it. Um, I think, so. I mean, I think you will have no shortage of opportunity. It feels like we're, as much as humans want stability, I think we are in a period of constant learning right now. Um, I agree. I um, I was talking to my son who gets to do middle school like this. <laughs> Yikes. And I was like, I swam competitively for three years. And I was like, you know, it took a long time. My coach used to say to me, you just got to love the suck. Mm-hmm. Yes. And <laughs> we're at a point right now where you're just going to have to embrace the suck and be like, this is pushing me and stretching me and I'm growing and I'm sometimes going to fall flat on my face and that's okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, that is an excellent lesson to leave off on. So we will we'll conclude there. But thank you again for, for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Y'all stay well. Thanks for the yeah. time. And that wraps another episode of The Zero Hour brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. Many thanks to Abby Bruce for sound design and production, Matthias Cefaletti for our theme music, and to our guests, as always, for lending their time and insights. Stay safe, stay strong. This is The Zero Hour, signing off for now.